0: Shayna Francesca often struggled with thoughts of self-doubt and feelings of being unworthy or unlovable. This led to suicidal thoughts, body dysmorphia, anorexia, bulimia, and other harmful practices. But that was then. Today, Shayna is here to share her story and how we can live more joyful and connected lives than we ever thought possible.
1: Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham.
0: Shana Francesca is a speaker, a writer, and an entrepreneur. Shayna has been interviewed on more than 60 podcasts worldwide. She has been published in Medium. Authority Magazine, Shout Out LA, an Emotional Intelli- Intelligence Magazine. She helps people live more, I love this, she helps people live more joyful and connected lives through the principles of life design. Welcome!
2: Thank you for having me, Carol. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to hearing your story on Never Ever give up hope because it's certainly you have met the criteria for Mm -hmm. someone who has struggled and never gave up. So start with sharing your story.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So my name is Shana Francesca. I'm a scholar of intentional and ethical leadership and living and a life designer. And, you know, I started out in this world born into an abusive household and then raised inside of an evangelical Christian cult um so my life both inside my home and outside of my home because i also went to the school connected to the church slash cult um my so my entire life was encompassed in not being able to show up as myself and having to align myself with other people's expectations in order to be safe when i was myself i was typically punished and, and that creates really harmful psychological effects. Uh-huh. And you know, to, to know that you are not safe to be yourself. And, and also what kind of compounds that and builds on top of that is that people resent you for wanting to be yourself, for having these uh-huh. moments when you do show up as yourself. Um, and, then, and then also being praised for showing up in a way that's inauthentic is also really, really, and we know there's studies that show how damaging that is psychologically when we pretend to be something we are not, and then we're praised for it, right? And so there was all of these things going on at the same time, physical, emotional uh, violence, and eventually sexual violence towards me, you know, in my own household. And then this adherence to purity culture, which we know leads to pedophilia, you know, the glorification of purity and innocence um, it leads directly to pedophilia. And then also this over-reliance on, you know, this reliance on child labor um, and, you know, for for the financial benefit of the church and the school. You know, so there was all of these things going on at the same time. Um, and so I got to see from a very early age what, un- what, what intentionally harmful and unethical leadership looks like and so it's no wonder that i have throughout my life always come back to and been grounded in this idea of what is it to be able to show up as ourselves how do we craft in physical environments that reflect who we are and allow us to take up space beautifully and intentionally and then how do we craft our lives and our leadership in ways that are ethical and intentional and what's the foundational concept um, that drives those things, that, that drives our authenticity, and not just ours, but empowers the world around us to be able to show up um, as, as, as intentional. And so, you know, from an early age, my mentors became books. I, I didn't, when your parents are deeply unhealthy people, they have a tendency to surround themselves with other deeply unhealthy people. And so I didn't have access to anybody whose life I wanted except through books right Mm. um because i wasn't allowed. what i what i read what i saw what i watched on tv it was all very um it was all very controlled but the funny thing is that somehow i i don't know why (laughs) i don't know why but somehow my father didn't see books as quite the threat as they were and maybe it's because maybe it's because i kind of hid I, i learned to hide some of my thoughts and beliefs, right, right, right. Um, and to keep those to myself because I knew they weren't safe in the world. Um, but, but you know, I started reading uh, C.S. Lewis's um, nonfiction uh, books. I've actually only read one of his fiction, <laughs> and not *The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe*. Um, but I've read almost everything he wrote nonfiction, um, and and men- much of it multiple times, and and tried to start to understand the world from. From a healthy place, and then I started reading like books like Jane Austen, and you know, I, I mean, books by and so and so. You're you're starting to see and and you know, all all like just so many, um, so many books that were like or and by authors who were critiquing, you know, our our society, right? But if you didn't know any better, you would think they were in praise of it or it was just fiction right? Like you wouldn't see it as harm. You wouldn't see it as, it, um, being all that revolutionary, <laughs> but, okay. but, but when you are, when you're in an unhealthy environment and you're starting to reach for how are other people able to show up in the world? How, what is other, what do other people think of this world? What do other people think about what's going on in the world? What do other people think about what I'm thinking about? Do they think about what I'm thinking about? And, 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 and I, and I, definitely see the connection between people who are trying to ban books right now and the rhetoric that they're using and the misinformation that they're perpetuating in order to fearmonger. Because a lot of people don't know, you can go to to the librarian at your child's school at your local library and you can tell the librarian, I don't want my child to read books about this, that, or the other, or if they do, I want to be notified so that I can read this book along with my child and they can ask me questions about it. Or you can just forbid them from reading them ent- entirely and the librarian will usher your child away from, them. they will not be allowed to check those books out, right? Hmm. Um, and, and And so when people are talking about banning books, we have to we have to be paying attention because they're not banning them to protect anyone, they're banning them to keep those ideas out of circulation. It, it's because you there's plenty of ways that you can protect your own child without making decisions for other people. Right. Um, and so I, you know I knew that ment early on mentors became uh, you know books that I was reading, and eventually led me to recognize that I find. So much beauty and so much that's so fascinating about the way that people see the world the way they have experienced the world and and um you know the way that they understand it and how it has molded and shaped the way that i'm able to show up in the world
0: backing up a little bit how did you avoid becoming bitter who because says i didn't? didn't okay all right so <laughs> who if, says did you didn't. did you work through that or for sure, because there's going um, to be people that are in that same position. So I'm just like, yeah,
2: yeah. Go ahead. Wilderness was absolutely a place I stayed for a really long time, um, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. I think it's a natural part of recognizing you live in a world that that is deeply inhuman, deeply inhumane. Right? Like there's so many things that are working against your average everyday person. Uh, that there's so many things working against Um, you know, marginalized people with marginalized identities. And so bitterness is going to come up. The thing is, we can't stay in it, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, We we can't stay in it. And because it's disempowering, that bitterness is taking all of your energy and focusing on the person who harmed you or the systems or the organizations that have harmed you, and it steals your voice. Uh, And the outgrowth of that bitterness became self harm right? And, and just trigger warning for anyone who's listening who might be sensitive to topics discussing physical violence or sexual assault. I'm going to spend a few moments talking about those things. So fast forward if those are things that you are not in a place mentally to be able to digest at this moment. I, my father started grooming me from the time that I was 12 or <laughs> before then, right? But at 12, he forced me to take a chastity pledge in front of our 2,000-person church, 2,000-2500-person 2, church. And, and the problem with that. Is that I I felt it was it was a lie, even though I am no longer invested in the idea of virginity. I think it is a tool, it is a weapon, um, meant to harm people. But the whole concept is like all the way down to the fact that not everyone has a hymen. <laughs> like not not everyone born with female genitalia is born with a hymen. That's a whole nother discussion. But I was raped at the age of three, oh and so God. and so I knew standing in front of my church saying. I you know, I, I am pure sexually, mm-hmm. and I have not mm-hmm. been violated, and I'm going to honor that time. It felt so disingenuous. it felt it felt too vulnerable for me, right It, it felt mm-hmm. too I felt too conflicted about it. And I asked that I just be able to do this ceremony that my father insisted on um, privately, and he insisted it had to be done publicly. Now let me also note that I am the only one of my siblings that was required to, to do it publicly. You know, we later later it became clear it's because my father was grooming me and he sexually assaulted me when I was 15. So he was making a public declaration that my body belonged to him. It wasn't about me. It was about him and him taking ownership to all the other men present that I belonged to him, which is deeply disturbing. So, yes, I experienced bitterness for a long time. And also then afterwards, when I asked for help, when I three years later, when I told people what happened, everyone believed me everyone yes because then my father confessed he admitted it okay but nothing was done to protect me nothing was done to protect me my mother did not feel safe to leave him and for those of you who might condemn her believe me i've already been down that road Mm. we've had to walk through that for years the reality is that when an when when an, an abused person leaves the abusive partner that is when they are most likely to be murdered right oh you're kidding really yeah no. And most people don't realize that. So my mm-hmm. mother didn't leave for two reasons. Number one, because she knew she was not physically safe to do so. Number two, because her family, when she had tried to leave him before, had not allowed her to leave to live with them until she could get back on her feet and, and, and make sure that she was financially stable enough to be on her own. Um, and then thirdly, she had contacted a lawyer. And because my mother was the primary breadwinner, the lawyer had made it clear that she would have to pay my father alimony. And yeah, and so there was three things working against her. And so she did not leave. And the church did not report it to the police. Um, And then when I when I talked to a lawyer about reporting it to the police, and, you know, having him prosecuted, they made it clear that because there was no physical evidence, there was really nothing that could be done. And and nothing would happen. And so I had all of these things stacked against me. So I ended up Mm -hmm. still living in the house with my father until he left my mom at 24. And I stayed because I knew that my little sister, who's 10 years younger than me, looked exactly like me. And if I left her oh, yeah. here, then he would go after her next. And I saw the same kind of grooming behavior with you know, with him um, toward her, and so I, I stayed. So when I say that there was multiple levels of bitterness on my part, number one, that I was parentified and that I needed to protect my own sibling. Number two, that my mom, couldn't figure out how to leave him. Number 3 that the church actively hid a pedophile. Number 4 that I was left to deal with this virtually on my own with everybody else going we're too busy. We don't we're not going to help you, right? Aww. Um, and so I did end up going to therapy. My mom, you know, my mom and I talked about it. She sent me to therapy for six months. Um, that's all she could afford at the time because it wasn't covered by health insurance mm-hmm. um, at the time. Well, there was all of these things going on at the same time. But what I'm going to tell you is that for the for the years that I spent bitter, my whole life was continually consumed by this man and what he had done to me. Instead mm-hmm. of instead of focusing on my own healing, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm specifically saying healing, not forgiveness, right? And I I had to realize that the two things are separate and that I don't owe anyone forgiveness. And what I do want for myself was healing, that I needed to accept a lot of things. Number one, that he was never going to take real responsibility for what he did, that someone can love you and also harm you at the same time. Um, and you not not needing to spend time with him. So essentially I had to mourn the loss of my own father, you know, like I, like he was right. dead because the yeah. idea of him, because who I had thought he was, was dead, right?
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and so, yeah, there was lots of bitterness, but ultimately I, I, by talking, by finding my voice and talking about what I had been through, what had been done to me, the lack of support from the people around me, I found so much healing in that and in finding the people who did support me. And, and honestly, I'm going to tell you right now to anybody who's going through really difficult things, your healing cannot happen. Like your total, complete healing, right? Which I don't think is real, right? Like I think it's a journey for the rest of our lives, but you getting to a place of health and wholeness cannot happen on your own. You, you, you it needs to happen in community. It needs to happen with people around you supporting you. That's where real healing actually happens. That's where we f- we realize and we get the support that we should have had when we were going through the, the terrible thing. Because if we had had the support going through the terrible right, thing, it wouldn't have been so terrible. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have harmed us that deeply because we would have had people to say, hey, oh, my gosh, um, I'm being hurt here. And they'd be like, oh, my gosh, let me help you. Let me come in. Let me protect you. Mm-hmm. Let me get you the research. Right. So it. It, finding community that supports you is deeply necessary for your healing. That's when my healing really was like, oh gosh, there are people who care if something bad happens to me. And there are people who feel empowered to help me when something bad happens to me from the beginning, right? I have that support now. I've empowered people around me. That's where real healing came in for me. And your mom? Yeah, so we went uh, I went no no contact or low contact with her for a very long time. I moved out at 25 and I had a lot of things to deal with and so did she. So did all of us because my dad left at 20 when I was 24. Um thank God. <laughs> but there was a lot of things we had to, we had to and it took a good, you know, <sighs> And we finally got to a a place (laughs) where we can actually um, talk about things in a way that is healthier. Only in the last three years, guys, I'm, I'm 39. My father sexually assaulted me when I was 15. My mom knew when I was 18, this is 21 years later. Hmm. Right? So this, you know, I'm not saying that 21 years is everyone's healing process, right? Because <laughs> I'm course. the first person in my family to to move towards this healing, to invest, to, to, to invest in my healing in this way, to recognize what that journey would be like and how much was invested in it. So because I did it mostly for the first 10 years entirely on my own, yeah, it's been a really long process. But that's why I say, if you want to shorten your healing process find your people
0: i like that find your people (laughs) people. well thank you for sharing that that was raw and i appreciate that i know that the audience will appreciate that we are going to take a quick 30 second break and when we come back we're going to talk about how your childhood motivated you to help others and a few other things including I would like you to share life design and your group coaching. So we have lots more to talk about and we'll be right back. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another, gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Well, thank you for sharing your story, Shana. This has been enlightening and also encouraging in that there are people who are going through similar things or have been through similar experiences like yourself. I know that what you have to share now is going to be a help for them. And so my first question to you is how did growing up in this abusive household motivate you to help others? Where was that pivotal point?
2: Yeah, I think it, it goes back to whether or not I wanted to spend the rest of my life being bitter or angry or I wanted make a difference in the world. and it's not like I had to, but I knew that like I, I couldn't I couldn't stay broken. I, I couldn't mm. stay I couldn't stay and it, it, it was that was not living, that was dying. And, and so I decided that the, the, and maybe this is a weird way to put it, but like the best revenge was finding my voice. The best way for me to move through the world was to actively look for a way to change it. For me to actively be a part of creating a world where that isn't anybody's reality anymore. And I may not see it in my lifetime, but that doesn't mean I'm not laying the groundwork for it. And, um, and so I, you know, I actively learned how to share my to share my story, but I had to get to a certain place of healing to be able to mm-hmm. share it, and it really hurt, helped people. Because at first, when you share your story, it's trauma dumping. Of course. You, like you're, you're Thanks. absolutely just needing to let it all out. Um, and then as you and then as I've moved through my, my healing, and and by the way you don't like heal from 25 years of trauma like in a year
0: right no kidding
2: um it takes a lot of years but there are there are times along the way where you go wow i can i can actually talk about this and not feel rage anymore i can talk about this and not want to cry all the time anymore There's a point at which like now when I tell my story, it almost feels like an entirely different person. Mm -hmm. Although I'm a hundred percent sure that it's me, (laughs) that that's my story. Right. Um, And I know that it is, it's just, it almost feels like it's someone else's life. Like it was an entire lifetime, uh, you know, different and separate from the one I'm in right now. Um, And that's when, you know, okay, I'm still emotionally connected to my story. Mm -hmm. It's just that I don't embody that story anymore. I realize that I get to write my own story. (laughs) Um, And when you recognize that, that, that what harm others have done to you, that's the story they tried to write for your life.
0: Right. And Good
2: point. Part of, part of healing is is regaining the recognition that you are the author of your story. And that no one else gets to write it, even though they're going to try over and over and over again. And now and now people don't really try. <laughs> Not as much as they used to. They don't they don't try as much as they used to. It doesn't mean that I haven't undergone really painful things since then. Um I, I, you know, when you are raised in a traumatizing environment, when you um when you've been groomed your entire life to default to other people's authority, there are things you're going to have to confront. Like for a long time in my dating life, I was very much in danger for a really long time. Um, I was—I've been kidnapped and raped. I have been—you know—I've—I've been—I've been raped many times in my life. Um, uh, n- not like an aggravated assault situation, but I was forcibly impregnated. Um, You know, the sex was consensual, the impregnation was not. And when I say forcibly, I mean, he removed the prophylactic in order to impregnate me without notifying me. Um, And back then, uh, you know, um, morning after pills were not a thing, right? So like, Mm these, there's all kinds of things that have happened to me since then. It's not like my dad left my life and all of a sudden things got cleaned up, right? Like it takes time for you to recognize how much you default to other people, how much you sacrifice yourself, how much you don't listen to your intuition, how much you you know when people violate your boundaries like that you don't even know what boundaries are you don't even know how to set them up you don't even know how to enforce them you don't know that you're allowed to enforce them um there's a whole lot of things that go along with a healing journey that 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 will come along in this pathway um but now that i know my voice now when when someone violates even my my boundaries in a in a tiny way If I call their attention to it and they do not immediately say, oh, my gosh, you're right. I'm sorry. I take accountability for that. If that's not their reaction, if immediately they're trying to gaslight me or defend themselves, I'm out. Mm -hmm. First contraction, right? Like, If if our first meeting, you're already trying to test my boundaries, I'm out. (laughs) I'm out no explanation, no discussion, i'm out because i don't owe you anything. you're testing my boundaries. you're you mean me harm. and i'm certain of that. and i don't need to prove it. i'm out. right? and so like you eventually get to a place in your healing journey where your boundaries are really beautiful and they're really amazing and you can set intentions and expectations in your relationships and then and then you can have discussions when those, you know, around the other persons and there's just like, again, that's where like intentionality comes in and it's such a, it's such a beautiful, beautiful place to be in your life.
0: I'd like you to share, uh, if you would please your life design program, your group coaching, and also if you could give any testimonials, that would be wonderful.
2: Yeah. So I have, I do conduct group coaching typically, um, you know i i can i try to gather a group of people together for a group co- coaching like four to six weeks at least once a year of the broader public but if people reach out and i get enough people we will do it all throughout the year um oftentimes now my group coaching is inside of organizations um inside mm. of either, you know nonprofits yeah. or organizations mm. where we're discussing um what it is to be intentional and ethical um but absolutely reach out about that um i uh, I'm typically connecting with the broader public through my workshops now. Um, I have two workshops and I'm adding a third. Um, so I give a, I'm a keynote speaker and a workshop facilitator and a consultant. so um, you know I'm always looking for speaking engagements and opportunities right, to come right. in and do more workshops. But in order to democratize democratize information, I offer my workshops in an abbreviated version through my website. Um, and also the opportunity for people to hire me as a coach directly. Um, but to to recognize and get people started in each workshop comes with a workbook that it's a 32, 33 page workbook um, for people to be able to continue that work on their own. Um, and it's a really accessible pricing, um, the, the individual workshop, I think both of them are 40 or $45 because I want people to be able to do this work for themselves. Right, that's
0: very affordable.
2: It's very affordable, um, and that gets people started, right? It, it gets you to 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 do, have activities. Each workbook there's activities. There's you know five chapters. There's an activity um, with each chapter. There's also an accompanying reading list, um, so that people can dive in and do this work um, and start doing this work on their own. So then then they can also kind of, and I encourage people to go to therapy. Um, and 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 get this process started for themselves, and then you can come back and let's talk about group coaching and so on and so forth. Because sometimes when you're like, if you're right in the beginning of your healing journey, um, I don't, I can't be people's therapist, um, and so I really encourage like my workshops along with going to therapy. If you're in the beginning, if you're further along in your journey, mm. you can do the workshops, no no problem, right? But yeah, so I, I I'm facilitating my work through my keynotes um, my workshops, both inside of organizations and, and through my website, um, and then also doing some consulting.
0: In conclusion, would you be able to give a word of encouragement to whoever you would like to speak to in the audience specifically, and also, um, how people can get involved?
2: Yeah, I absolutely know and the core of my being, that curiosity is what saved my life. The desire to wreck or, you know, because when you're inside of these really harmful, abusive systems, they don't want you to get curious. They don't want you mm. to question the system. And so oftentimes you've been punished for your curiosity. And I also truly believe that a huge part of our healing is tapping back into our curiosity um, which which also connects to our you know it connects to our intuition, and so I would just encourage you to get curious, listen to the stories of the lived experiences of people around you. Recognize that there are more people in the world who understand what you've gone through because they've had their own difficulties, than you necessarily previously understood. Um, and the important part of that is that you can then form community around people who genuinely care. Um, right. and are further along in their healing journey than you are. That's that's also like mm-hmm. a, key, a key point. It has to be people who are further along in their healing journey than you are because um, people who are at the same place, it, it can be easy to kind of stagnate each other. Unless, point, you're all, right? yeah, unless you're all actively doing your own individual work. But yeah, um, curiosity, curiosity. Please invest
0: in it deeply. <laughs> That's very good advice. That's excellent advice. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Never, Ever Give Up Hope. I sincerely appreciate you sharing your story and also the tools that you have given the audience as far as their healing journey. And I thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.